New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. Our guest today says this about soul initiation. He writes, A soul encounter can radically change us. This change is not because it gives us information, but because we give ourselves so fully to the encounter. A door opens and we step through into an astonishing realm from which we never return. The world changes, we change, consciousness shifts. We might overhear ourselves saying things we have not known. We become someone we don't recall having met. We are changed forever, shifting closer to our ultimate place in the world from which we are unable to carry what is hidden as a gift to others. This character forming activity is a work of Descent to Soul, and it will serve as the subject of our dialogue today with our guest, Dr. Bill Plotkin. Bill Plotkin is a wilderness guide, eco-depth psychologist, and an agent of cultural regeneration. As founder of Southwest Colorado's Animus Valley Institute, he has, since 1980, guided thousands of women and men on the journey of soul initiation. His books include Soulcraft, Nature and the Human Soul, Wild Mind, and The Journey of Soul Initiation, a field guide for visionaries, evolutionaries, and revolutionaries. Join us for the next hours. We explore this spiritual adventure of soul initiation with our guest, Dr. Bill Plotkin. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Bill, welcome. Thank you so much, Justine. It's, it's um, a great pleasure to be with you today. It's a great pleasure for us to have you. Uh, before we talk about your work in the many decades of Journey to the Soul initiation, I would like um, for you to tell us how you got into the work. Tell us um, about your early experiences that led you to this work. Well, um, I think like most humans, I had a spiritual um dimension to my life, even as a child. I think most people do when it isn't um, squashed by the, the dominant culture. Um, so, for example, I wondered about things like, like I think most children do, like, 
where did I come from? Who was I before I was born to my parents? And, and uh, what's life about anyways? What is it to be human? And uh, where, where it, what's this all about anyways? And, and then a little bit later, even questions about what is death and what happens then. And uh, speaking of death, I had um, a series of repeating dreams as a child when I was very young. Uh, starting probably age four or five, they had to do with with death, and in particular with my visiting a cemetery and being feeling a call to a particular underground crypt that I, I walk into, and there are these uh, men. I think they're men, and now you know later in life I would I'd call them monks, and they were in robes, and they were standing around a table. Uh, on which lied a, a dead person. And I was just fully fascinated and drawn in, even as a child, to this space. And um, they looked at me and they just kind of nodded as if they were expecting me. And um, they were waving objects over the body and chanting in a certain way. And the sense is that they were teaching me something about about death, not necessarily dying, but about death. So that's, I think a lot of people have spiritual experiences somewhat like that, perhaps through dreams. And it was almost like a calling card or a, um, a, a hint from mystery about what I was to do in my life. It's something to do with the mysteries of death. And um, as I got into my late teens, early 20s and college and so on, um, I began exploring spiritual paths that were available to me because the the religious background of my family um never helped it didn't feel like it helped me out at all and so i explored buddhism and sufism and various yogas and so forth and this is in the early or sorry the, like, yeah the early 70s and and it always felt like something was missing that there was this question of of meaning that was seemed to be missing. And as I got older, I got a sense that um, there was something about the mysteries of soul that none of the spiritual paths I'd studied were um, speaking to me about. And um, I began to get a sense, well, there must be a difference between soul and spirit. These are different things. And as I learned more, I understood that the spiritual journey upward to uh, oneness or unity or God is a different spiritual journey downward um, then the path of going downward to soul to because the journey downward has something to do with finding what is most unique about us individually about our unique service that we can provide the world whereas the journey spiritual journey upward is about this experience of oneness and how everything is connected so um i i my first really big step into doing the kind of work I ended up doing for so many decades was um, after um, learning about the work of Stephen Foster and Meredith Little in California, um, who had the School of Lost Borders, which still exists, of course. And um, I wrote to them, and they sent me one of their early handbooks on the Contemporary Vision Fest. And uh, I took myself out uh, into the wild, into the uh, high in the Rocky Mountains, the tree line, 
for five days, fasting for four of them. And during that time, I had my first soul encounter. And I didn't even get to meet Stephen and Meredith for maybe another five or six years and didn't even train with them for a while. But um, there was something about my experience in the vision fast that made it clear to me um, there's this whole realm of spirituality that has almost completely disappeared from the contemporary Western world. Is that uh, on that particular journey that you took by yourself, um, was that when you received a vision mm -hmm. of a name, let's say Cocoon Weaver? That's it. Is, is that, uh, and it came to you from a vision of a butterfly? Is that right? Yeah, pretty close. Um, this was on the fourth day of my fast, so, and alone at 11,500 feet and a tree lined uh, near a alpine lake. And um, for those of our listeners who haven't had that experience of, of fasting under those circumstances, one's consciousness shifts radically after four days of fasting and essentially being in prayer and um, using certain um, fundamental practices during the time. And I'm assuming you have water with you, so it's fasting, but with water, is that yes, in, correct? Yeah. Yeah. In um, my case, and in the work we do at Animus Valley Institute here in Southwest Colorado, um, all of our, when we do guide vision fasts, which is only one of many things we guide, um, we insist that people drink lots of water. But there are many traditions in which one fasts without water as well. Um, more, much more dangerous and intense. But so, yes, I was drinking water, and it wasn't a vision of a butterfly. It was an actual experience with a, a butterfly. I was actually sitting in the meadow there in that fourth day of my fast and watching very carefully the lives of these small mammals called pikas. They're kind of look like rabbits, but they're smaller. Um, and they were gathering. Uh, watercress and other uh, herbs for their winter. This was in early September, so it was early fall at that altitude. And, um, and I was also meditating on a spruce tree that was 30 feet from me on the shore of the lake. And that spruce tree by day two had identified, it revealed itself to me as being actually a Zen monk in a green and brown robe. And I was having a series of conversations with this monk about the lake and the sky and the mountains and so on. And at one point, the this fourth day, the uh, monk gestured with his left hand, pointed to his left, and I followed his his gesture, and um, and saw that there was a large yellow butterfly that was flying and coming my way. And I thought that's interesting. I mean, not any more than the the monk or the pikas. But that's pretty interesting, and it flew to me like a butterfly does directly, which is a lot of kind of random movements all over the place. But it finally came right to me and actually brushed the left side of my face as it went past me, and I heard, in English, cocoon weaver, just those two words, cocoon weaver. And since then, I've come to understand that our extraordinary human psyches will translate um, 
from the others into whatever our language is. So I just heard that and I thought, well, okay, that's interesting. I turned my gaze back to the pikas because they were more interesting. And it was maybe 15 seconds later that um, I, I got it, that um, I had been shown something that was uh, key to who I would be in this lifetime. That was profound. That was profound. You had a moment in that quiet moment and your body is so still because it's not digesting food or anything and you're yeah. you're off by yourself. You're isolated. Um, there, There's this vision that comes. In your book, Bill, you describe how most species on the planet know their niche, so to speak. Yes. Uh, for example, um, salmon yeah. innately know that they swim upstream to spawn. They uh, they all know this, and yet uh, humans have a little trouble <laughs> mm-hmm. with understanding this uh, completely, and and maybe that's part of the problem. So, I want you to speak to that in just one moment. But I want to remind our listeners that. I am here with Dr. Bill Plotkin, and he is the author of The Journey of Soul Initiation, and it's a field guide for visionaries, evolutionaries, and revolutionaries. And if you want to know about his work, you can go to the website. It's animus.org, and it spells animus, A-N-I-N. M-A-S, animus.org. Or you could get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Dr. Bill Plotkin, and we're talking about our initial assignment and and knowing that and how humans maybe are, are not so clued in as other species about what we're here for. So describe that uh, to us, Bill, and, and how that fits in with your work. Yeah, you, you gave us a great example, Justine, about salmon. They never sat down and instructed by their parents about how to be salmon. Um, but they know. Um, they're not even raised by their parents like most fish, and they're just birthed. And But they know. They have this inner knowledge they're born with. And among other things, they know to migrate downstream at some point, to go out into the ocean for some number of years, depending on the species. 
and uh, to come back at a certain point. And uh, biologists have been uh, theorizing for years about how they do it. But that's a different question than why do they do it and how do they know to do it? And so that has really fascinated me. That And as far as I, my understanding from biologists is that every species is born with the knowledge of how to be a version of their species. Um, so uh, we might wonder, well, is there any reason at all to believe that we humans would be different? And I'm quite sure we're not. Now, I'm, you know, after 40 years of this work, I'm absolutely convinced we're not, that we too are born with a certain kind of knowledge. And it's not knowledge that is linguistic or cultural because we're born with it. We're born with it before we even begin to um, acquire a language or a culture. And what I believe every being on the planet is born with is the knowledge of the unique individual niche that they are to take in the larger Earth community. So I call that um, our unique ecological niche, or for short, our echo niche. And that turned out to be what I have become convinced is the best definition for the word soul. And that's what I mean by soul, our unique echo niche. So it's an echo. And that's, yeah. that's opposed to like our ego niche. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Because our ego niche is cultural and linguistic and it is some version of a social role or vocation, or a career, or a creative project, and and so on. Um, but our soul wants us to bring a gift into the world that can that is framed within the uh, ecological system within the larger Earth community. We're born with that, just like everything else is. In some traditions, that kind of knowledge is called our original instructions. So we're born with that, but. As far as you know, we humans are unlike any other species, as far as we know, in that um, it's, well, it's a number of ways, but uh, uh, relevant to what we're talking about now, we forget what we were born for. And there are a lot of myths that, that, that tell us stories to that effect. Um, but another way to say it is what's unique about us is our mode of consciousness. We have these things called egos which is really just a way to say that we have a capacity for conscious self-awareness, conscious self-awareness. And the, our capacity for doing that, we, we say, is held by our ego. So I don't mean ego as in spiritual traditions that say that ego is the problem, we've got to get rid of it, but rather we, it defines us as humans that we have egos, conscious um, self-awareness. And the... The goal is to mature the ego, not to get rid of it. And the problem in the world today, and for, for a long time now, has, is immature egos. So all healthy cultures have a process to help an early adolescent discover or remember their original instructions, which I call the encounter with soul. And... When we have that encounter, we, we don't get a literal like readout of our ecological niche um, because, I mean, it's hard to put in language what any 
species, ecological niches, because it's a set of relationships with everything else. So with us humans, what happens uh, during soul encounter is that we are shown essentially a metaphor. It's a metaphor that gives our ego a sense of what place in the larger world I have. So for me, it was the weaving of cocoons or helping my task in life is to help others, other humans, weave cocoons of transformation for themselves. And that's the transformation specifically from an adolescent human to uh, a true adult human. So um, my partner, Janine Marie Haugen, and I met several years ago, um, as we were talking about how to explain these things to people, we called that metaphor, metaphoric image of our echo niche, our mythopoetic identity, mythopoetic identity. It's a metaphor, like in my case, the, with the weaving of cocoons. It, it shows me what to do. And not only does it give me information, um, the vision, in my case of cocoon weaving, began to do its work on my ego and it reshaping my ego. That's a process of uh, several months or a year or more in which the vision, I just want to say it again because it's such an important point. The vision is not just information. It's not even primarily information. Um, I think that quote you, you read at the beginning maybe gets at that, that it's the vision itself starts doing its work on my consciousness, on my ego, and it reshapes my ego from an adolescent one to an adult one. And this can happen, I know you, you write about this and it's your experience, it, it's not a chronological thing, like um, we, we turn 21 and mm -hmm. we're an adult or, or whatever that is, it's not that, it, it might happen when we're 65, That's right. uh, that we, we don't fully become this, the kind of adult that you're talking about. Yes, exactly. Um it's, it's kind of tragic to have to say it, but I believe the vast majority of um, humans alive today um, never get out of what I would consider early adolescence, get stuck there. And um, it's in late adolescence, which I call the stage of the cocoon, for obvious reasons. Uh, it's in late adolescence that the journey of soul initiation takes place. And the people I've worked with and the people whose stories I've read about that I might never have met um, suggest the pattern that, again, for most humans, it never happens. But um, for those that, um, that do go through the journey, uh, typically our mid to late 20s is the earliest it happens for contemporary humans. And it may happen in as late as our 60s or 70s. Carl Jung is an example. He had two soul encounters from my reading of his, his biography. And one happened when, let's see, was 19, when he was 41. And the second one was when he was 52. And he probably entered the cocoon again, which is in my uh, developmental framework is uh, late adolescence. He entered late adolescence when he was about 34. That's when he had the breakup with Freud. And because there's always a crisis when we enter late adolescence. And um, he was there until age 52 when he had 
his famous Liverpool dream, which was his second soul encounter, just as a quick example. So I'd love for you to say something about just what, if if most people don't really get this far, um, so how do most of us, what is that, what does that early adolescence look like, no matter what age we are, if we haven't really done the work mm-hmm. of soul encounter? Yeah. Um, in my framework, I call it the eco-soul-centric developmental wheel. It's um, the subject of my book, Nature and the Human Soul. Every stage of life in this framework has two tasks, two developmental tasks. And the way we progress from one stage to the next is not by growing older and not by having some elder come around and waving their hands over your head and saying you're now in this next stage. It's not even by going through a rite of passage, which does not move people from one stage to the next. A rite of passage rather celebrates and formally marks a passage that's already happened and helps the person who's entering a new stage adjust to that stage and help the community and the family adjust to having someone who's in a new stage. Okay, so um, the two, I can say it is one task actually. The task of early adolescence is to develop a persona, a social presence that is both authentic and socially accepted by at least one peer group. So you might say that's it's as if mystery designed us humans so that it says, okay, after puberty, here's your main job. You've got to take whatever you learn from your family, values, and so forth, and uh, with that foundation, develop your own value system and your own style and your, and your own sense of sexuality, among other things, and um, your, your own music and so forth. And it's got to be true to who you really are, to what you really feel and experience about yourself as a human being. And you have to find a version of that, a creative version of that, that is acceptable to your peer group. And I don't know if that sounds easy or not, but I find that most contemporary humans find that extremely difficult, especially because we live, we tend to live in, most contemporary people live in cultures that are really focused on conformity of like there's certain ways to be a human and certain things you ought to wear and say and buy and so forth. There's such a focus on conformity that authenticity goes out the window. And so many people don't even know how to find out what their real feelings are and values and so on. Um, so that's where people get stuck in, in early adolescence where they're people tend to spend the rest of their lives kind of accessorizing this early adolescent uh, persona and most more to make oneself look good than to be real and authentic. And we've, we've lost a lot of the resources, both inner and outer, that help us become authentic. And it's, again, it's, it's a tragic thing, but that's where I believe we are. So, in hopefully, in some at some point in our life, as you said, like you mentioned, Jung, something happened, a a, a crisis. Mm-hmm. He he his friendship with Freud got ruptured. I mean, that was huge for him. Yes, 
and and that starts the descent. And it's very interesting. You talk about how uh, that encounter with soul is not transcendent. It's not like going up and being spiritually transcending, you know, our our, our physical selves, mm-hmm. but it's actually going down, yes. going, it's earthbound. So we'll talk more about that in just one moment. I'm here with Dr. Bill Plotkin, and he is the author of The Journey of Soul Initiation. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Dr. Bill Plotkin, and we're talking about journey of soul, really getting in touch with our, our soul and our purpose. And and I just mentioned how it's going down. So it's in in some ways, it's really related to the earth. And and all of this has to do with going to the beginning of our conversation. It has to do with our place in the web of life. That that mm-hmm. that our assignments, so to speak, in the in the web of life, and getting in touch with that. So, um, uh, and I I know that you use the metaphor of the caterpillar and the butterfly. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's an it's a very useful metaphor, I think, for us. Um, can you speak about that? Yes, thank you. Um, it is a very helpful metaphor, um, not just because it relates to this. My original instructions about cocoon weaving, it really fits what, um, as an analogy, what we go through on the journey of soul initiation. And in particular, in what I call the descent to soul, which is what the book is really about. Um, the descent to soul is one particular core experience that happens at least once during the journey, uh, but it can have several t- happen several times. And it can even happen one or more times after the journey of soul initiation. And the um, so the descent to soul is um, this spiritual odyssey that typically lasts several weeks to months or even a year or more. And it's when um, our identity uh, we shed our our understanding of our social and vocational identity, and we go through a liminal time of having none. And then we have the, an encounter to soul, like I gave an example with myself, and then we go through this. Um, metamorphic reshaping of the ego and then we learn to embody that as a gift to others so with the caterpillar uh, both moth and and uh, butterfly species um, there are these um, five phases of the um, transformation and we go through the same five phases in the on the descent of soul uh, for us I call them preparation Dissolution, soul encounter, metamorphosis, and enactment. So for the the caterpillar, the preparation phase corresponds to um, the fact that, I don't know if if people know this, but caterpillars shed their skin several times. 
exact number depending on the species. And each time they grow a larger skin. But there are caterpillars before the shedding and caterpillars after. And biologists refer to this as a molting. So, and this a caterpillar is like the early adolescent of that species. And it's like for us humans, we a molting is like we might change um, careers, or we might change our social circle, or we might leave one romance and start another romance, or we might um, leave behind one religion or spiritual path and adopt another. So these are these are um, part of our preparation. But for humans, we also need to um, cultivate our innate human wholeness. That's a big topic, and I wrote a whole book about it called Wild Mind. Um, and I describe the four facets of human wholeness that each person is born with. It's it's um, mapped out onto the four directions, cardinal directions, um, universal template. And I won't take the time to describe it right now, but we're all born with these four facets, these four capacities, but unless our community, our family and teachers and so forth, help us cultivate them, they are not cultivated and we don't have access to those resources. And getting that access is a really, really important part of the preparation for the descent, which again happens in the cocoon, not early adolescence, but late adolescence. Um, so, um, so the oh yeah, back to the caterpillar. So, the skin shedding, the moltings, is like our preparation, and then dissolution. Oh, the, I guess you'd say the real, the final preparation for the caterpillar is that actually, if it's a moth caterpillar, it weaves a cocoon. Who knows if it knows exactly what it's weaving and why, but it does. Um, or if it's a butterfly caterpillar, it, it's, it's, its body actually changes itself into something like a cocoon, which biologists call a chrysalis. So that, you could say, that's, that's the final preparation, the actual weaving of the cocoon. Um, and then the second phase is um, the dis, what I call dissolution. And, and I use that phrase because that's literally what happens for a caterpillar. That inside that cocoon or chrysalis, the caterpillar body liquefies, literally. It's this caterpillar soup. And, um, and you can imagine that's a harrowing experience for a caterpillar, but it's certainly we know it is for humans. That the people I've guided over 40 years who are going through dissolution, it's it's terribly uh, you, uh, dis, disorienting. It's uh, often uh, called dismemberment. And when someone goes through that and they don't know what's going on, they don't have a guide, and they haven't read a book on it, um, they're often terrified and they might seek help from a psychotherapist or a um, religious pastor or something. And in almost every case, those people have no idea what's actually going on, and they rescue, they quote-unquote rescue the person from their experience, which means... They treat it like a pathology. They exactly treat it like a, a pathology, and, and that aborts the descent. Luckily, Carl Jung, he had no idea what was going on for him. He started having these uh, these visions, these, he called them fantasies, these deep imagination experiences. And he was being brought night after night into these entirely different worlds and being s brought through some incredibly intense dismembering experiences. And he wasn't in control of it. He was on, he was on just there for the ride. And 
but he said yes to it. And even though he was a psychiatrist himself, um, he, he didn't rescue himself. Okay, so that's dissolution. What happens for the caterpillar is the liquefaction of its body. And then the next phase I call soul encounter. And for the caterpillar, what happens? This is so fascinating to me that biologists say there are these certain cells in the caterpillar body. They've been there all along. Biologists call them imaginal cells. Now, they're speaking biology. That imaginal, for them, refers to the name for the adult butterfly or moth, which is the imago, the I-M-A-G-O. So imaginal cells, or we could say, are the cells in the caterpillar body that has always been imagining a butterfly um, or a moth, the adult stage of that creature. So in this third stage for the caterpillar, the imaginal cells go to work and say, okay, look, we got all these recyclable materials of this caterpillar in the form of this soup, and we're going to reform it into this utterly different, physically different uh, creature, a butterfly or a moth. And um, But the, that soul encounter phase is just when the imaginal cells wake up and they go to work. And the other cells in the caterpillar, you know, think these imaginal cells are invaders and the immune system tries to destroy them, but with any luck, they don't succeed. So the fourth phase is the metamorphosis, and that's the actual turning of the soup into a, a butterfly or a moth. Um, because if that caterpillar soup had just got the vision of a flying creature and then the cocoon opened, it just would you'd just have this soup that would that would um, go splat, and there'd never be a butterfly or moth. So that metamorphosis phase is really essential, and it's equally essential for uh, uh, humans on the descent to soul. That it's not just this is what I was saying before. The descent is not just about getting the information from the image, the dream image, the archetype, the pattern. It's um, the reshaping of the adolescent ego into an adult ego, and that takes some months or even years to happen. So we're in the cocoon for quite a while. Back to the caterpillar. Finally. Um, when the butterfly body is well enough formed, the cocoon cracks open, the butterfly steps out only a step, and before it can fly, it needs to you know, take some, uh, some breaths, and it needs to fill these wings out with fluid. That takes some time. And then it needs to start moving the wings, literally stretching the wings. That's where that metaphor comes from. And, um, and so it's embodying the the adult butterfly or moth, but it's not yet flying, it's not yet pollinating, it's not yet procreating, which is what the adult does. Um, and when the butterfly actually takes to the air, that corresponds in humans to the passage of soul initiation. So um, there's, as I say, there's one or more descents to soul during the journey of soul initiation, but towards the end, the individual human has been stretching their wings, so to speak, enough and beginning to embody in simple ways their original instructions. And when they're really ready to fly, then they're going to learn what I call a delivery system uh, as a way to carry their gift that they were born with to 
their people in the larger Earth community. So, yeah, there it is. And um, and so you you equate that with um, if if we're going through this. Hmm. That we then have, um, like the butterfly, then its job is to pollinate. Yes. Uh, so it flies around and it, it, it mates and it lays eggs and it starts the whole process over again. But in the meantime, it's pollinating. Mm-hmm. And so it's, in, in other words, you are equating that with humans as, as pollinators. Yes. That, that, that's part of our job too, exactly. uh, and we each would do it in our own unique way. Once we discover that gift, it is that we're to give. Am, am I am I getting this image in? Yes, correct over here. Yes, exactly right. Yeah. So um, yeah, butterflies and moths pollinate. That's part of their gift to the world, um, and they do it with they pollinate you know specific species of plants depending on their species of moth or butterfly. And yeah, so that's the analogy exactly, that each of us humans is also born with a particular way of enhancing life. You know, these days, those of us who are progressively oriented, where we recognize that we live in life-destroying cultures, and we've gone a good ways or a bad ways down that trail of destroying life. Everybody knows about the sixth mass, mass extinction and... Um, climate disruption and so on um but and so we tend to us those of us who are progressively oriented saying we need to switch from a life destroying culture to a life sustaining one but i want to increase the i want to say it's more radical than that that all of life is not meant to be life sustaining we'd still be single cell bacteria if that was true Exactly. Um, where everything, everything on this planet is created to be life enhancing so that we c- complexify and we diversify. Just to make this distinction that caterpillars are consumers. They are eating leaves. They're consuming, consuming, consuming. Butterflies are mouths of pollinators. What happens if you have humans who are only consumers? The answer is what we've got now. There we are. There we are. I'm here with Dr. Bill Plotkin. He's the author of The Journey of Soul Initiation. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Dr. Bill Plotkin, and we're talking about soul initiations. We're talking about um, 
enhancing life. And I was just thinking, um, we did an interview uh, with quite a few interviews with Bill McDonough. He's an anticipatory design architect. And he said something about the word sustaining. So he really goes along with what you're saying. Mm -hmm. That's not something we should be striving for. You would never say, if they'd say, somebody asks you, how is your marriage? And you say, oh, it's sustainable. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So what you're talking about is that it's our uh, assignment to become life-enhancing, to pollinate life. And... um, so it, it has to do with the earth itself. It has to do, you, you even talk about how um, all these crises that are going on that you, you mentioned, racial inequality, uh, climate uh, interruption, and, and all that's just going on. And the caterpillar, we're like consumers and just eating our environment and just eating it up. So therefore, here we are. You're saying that there's something more that we could be doing, and and there's something underneath all these crises, and that's the crisis of of soul mm-hmm. in some way. Mm-hmm. So I'd love for you to help us flesh that out a bit. Yeah, um, I can say it this way. For me, I've come to believe or understand that the underlying crisis is arrested human development. Um, i even go so far as to say systemic human development oppression, that in, except for the few intact nature-based indigenous traditions that haven't been destroyed by dominator cultures, um, most, the rest of humans, most of the rest of us humans um, get stuck in our development in early adolescence, as I was saying earlier. So that's really the underlying crisis um, that in mainstream Western psychology, our uh, maps of human development tend to be just maps of the way contemporary humans develop, which is not very far or very deep. Um, So yeah, that's the I've become convinced that every single major crisis we have on the planet right now is a result of arrested human development. And so this yeah. would be like like as if we we are stuck in the caterpillar stage. Yes. And we're just consuming. If if like the caterpillar never goes into its cocoon and let's say it's living on a tree, it'll just eat up all the leaves in the tree. And then the tree dies, you yeah. know, and so that's kind of where we are as a as a um, collective species. It is, and the bigger caterpillars um, have recognized that there's only so many leaves, and they're trying to uh, hoard all the leaves for themselves and their buddies, and let everyone else starve. And that's also what's happening, and so in order to mature as humans we have to develop this these social and cultural forms that get an adolescent version of us in uh, to transform into an adult version these are it's not biological biologically we get a ride up through puberty and then it's up to human community to create the conditions to help a post-pubescent human early adolescent um, get to adulthood and there are um 
there are initiation processes and ceremonies that every healthy culture develops. Each one develops their own version of it, but I believe they all have the same deep structure. And so what I've done um, over these last 40 years, and it's uh, the results are in this new book, is you might say two things. One is that I provide a deep structure map of these five phases of the descent to soul, and I believe any healthy culture would have their version of that deep structure. But on the other side, every culture or society has their own way of manifesting that, their own version of it. And so the second thing the book is doing is presenting a contemporary Western nature-based approach to the descent to soul that we've been developing at Adams Valley Institute for 40 years. It is not based on the uh, um, practices or traditions of any other culture. It's, it's not appropriated or co-opted for many indigenous peoples, none of whom I've actually studied with. And I wanted to, but I, I kept myself from doing that because I wanted to find our contemporary Western, a contemporary Western world way, sorry, to do it. Um, and um, most of the practices that we use are from what you would generally call Western mysticism. And there's some that are similar to what are found in indigenous traditions, but those ones are found in all traditions, including our own Western um, religious and spiritual practices. So uh, what can we do then? Do, do, must we have a guide? Uh, yes and no. Um, there are stories in the book of people who did not have guides. Um, in some ways, I'm one of them. Um, I didn't have an in-person guide. I had the help of Stephen and Meredith through one of their early handbooks and a couple and some letters we exchanged. And I didn't study with them for, until five years later. And their support made all the difference, but I didn't have you know, an in-person guide. Carl Jung didn't have an in-person guide. Joanna Macy, whose initiation story is in the book, she did not have an in-person guide. William Butler Yeats, his story is in there, he didn't. But that's outer guides. Um, there's also inner guides. That's one of the extraordinary things about our human psyche. We're all born with inner guides. And whether we can access them or not consciously is another question because do you remember I was talking about the four facets of wholeness that we're born with, but we don't necessarily cultivate unless we get some help? One of them I call the dark muse beloved. Um, for now, we just think of it as the muse. So I often call it the soul, the guide to soul. Uh, and this is a part of our psyche. And this is a part of us that will guide us on the descent. Now, Carl Jung, who did not have an outer guide, he had several inner guides um, that were there waiting for him. He, and he had a very strongly developed dark muse, beloved. And um, so, like, for example, um, a character from the Bible, Elijah, and another one, Salome, and a serpent were three of his early guides. And later on, Elijah morphed into a guide called Philemon, which maybe people are familiar with that term, that name. And later, Philemon even morphed into a, um, a guide called Ka. So yes, Jung had a guide, several guides, but they were inner ones, not outer ones. I, I know we don't have a lot of time here to really 
flesh this out completely, but uh, I just want you to mention something about um, dreams. Dreams can be a guide, I think, but not in the way that we go into dream interpretation. So what, what's your advice about using, keeping track of our dreams and, and letting them help us in guide? Yeah, dream, dream work is one of the most important uh, tools we use at Animus and, of course, is found all over the world. But this is, this is kind of harsh. It might sound harsh to say this, but I found that the vast majority of dream work approaches or techniques in the Western world are early adolescent. They're actually worse than that. They're egocentric early adolescent. And that means that what we do with dreams um, in those approaches is the dream is interpreted by the ego, either by the dreamer's ego or by a you know the analyst's or the therapist's ego, um, and we and then we apply the dream as if it's trying to give us guidance about our everyday life, which is an early adolescent approach to it. Because for an early adolescent, there only is everyday life. There's no there's no depth to the psyche or to life yet. So at Animus, we use what we call soul-centric dream work, which is dream work that supports the dream to do its work on the ego rather than the ego doing its work on the dream. And we've learned this um, from two people in particular, um, uh, James Hillman, the archetypal depth psychologist. He wrote this extraordinary book called The Dream in the Underworld, which lays out the the basic understanding, the, the-, the theory, the model for um, how dreams are initiatory experiences, or they can be for us. But he didn't have much of a, a praxis or a practice. Uh, but then there's others, including, uh, most importantly, I, I feel, Robert Bosnack, who has developed um, dream work techniques which allow the dream to do its work on the dreamer, on the ego. And Steven Eisenstadt has also has that kind of approach. And um, and then there's there's others, but those are the two have been when counting Hillman, the three have been most useful to me. Bill, I just I just so appreciate the the journey that you've taken us on, and it, you've just only just barely opened the door for us. But hopefully, listeners can get a, a feeling of the depth of, that you're talking about where you're encouraging us to go. So we give our gifts back to the mm-hmm. web mm-hmm. of life and we become really embedded in good ways to for life-enhancing uh, activities. So I want to thank you so much mm-hmm. for being part of New Dimensions. Um, my pleasure, Justine. Thank you so much for the invitation. I, I very much enjoyed being with you today. Thank you. I've been speaking with Dr. Bill Plotkin, and he's the author of The Journey of Soul Initiation, a field guide for visionaries, evolutionaries, and revolutionaries. And if you want to know more about his work, you can go to the website animus.org. That's animus, A-N-I-M-A-S dot org. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3,723. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973. 
thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You, too, can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.